0: welcome 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 surprise this is a bonus friday distraction pieces rewind and as it's pride month i wanted to 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 reissue a podcast that in my mind was like two three years ago but it's because of the last year that we've had it only actually came out in february of last year but it was a chat i had with michael cashman and it just blew me away and Pride month and the pride parades are all to do with Stonewall which Michael was a key part of and he tells his story and it's it's glorious so yeah i wanted to just sling this one back up on your feed but while i'm here i also I w- 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 wanted to give you a bit of of pride month v- viewing recommendations in an upcoming episode I return on Brett Goldstein's films to be buried with. I talk a little bit about the reason, or I think one of their reasons, there's so much amazing gay cinema. And I won't go into that now, because we go into it into the episode, and it was a, 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 an interesting realisation. But I wanted to give you a few things t- to watch. So get a pen and paper out, or as this is in the intro, you should, it should be easy to come back and find. The first one is a British film called Victim it's fantastic let's i'm going to jump around the countries i'm then going to go with a french film called 120 bpm which if you enjoyed it's a sin recently it's a similar era but in over in france at that time um let's jump over to america for for tangerine tangerine is amazing and it was all shot on iphones but you can't tell at all it's a genuine it's a a work of art. So I think you'll enjoy that. Let's head back to the UK and let's go for Ammonite. Now, Ammonite, you might actually be able to catch in some cinemas still. It's led by Kate Winslet, who obviously everyone is mad about at the moment, rightfully so, because of Mayor, Mayor of Eastbound and Downtown. Let's go back to... Have we gone to Italy? Let's go to Italy for a special day. Sophia Loren in a wonderful... Wonderful film that all takes place in one in one apartment building as such on a special day. Let's go back to America for Beach Rats, all set in Bro- Brooklyn, in the Brooklyn gay scene or I guess rent boy scene in places. Um, again, absolutely loved it. England again, God's Own Country. Er, Francis Lee, who did Ammonite, it was the film that really put him on the on the map so that's wonderful it's in rural england and then let's go back to france and end in portrait of a a lady on fire now a lot of these i've spoken about in more detail on my films of the year lists because if they came out in in a year that i've been doing the films of the year list they were on my films of the year so yeah i just just, just, i I just wanted to to recommend then them to to run through again 120 bpm portrait of a lady on fire that's from They're both from France. Italian, A Special Day from England. Victim, it's from 1961. It's a a really important film. I think I talk about it with Michael. God's Own Country and Ammonite. And then from America, Tangerine and Beach Rats. And if you watch any of these, hit me up on socials and let me know what you think. If you get through all of them, even better. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on these films. Yeah, this, this chat with Michael... Blew me away at the time, and I've thought about it regularly since. It's also fun. N- note my um, flagging of Lil Nas X as an underrated icon, an important person in the LGBTQ plus movement, and then fast forward a year and see how he's just been killing it recently and just making absolute waves um, and riding them like nobody's business. Yeah, as I said, this is a bonus one. If you missed it last year, then you're in for a treat. If you didn't miss it, I genuinely I recommend giving it another listen. This is the perfect time to do so. Big love and respect to all my LGBTQ plus homies. Other episodes you could go back and check out is the episode with Jordan Gray from, I think, 2017. Um, she's amazing and astounding. The recent episode with Simone Sun is a cracker. Um, one of the really early ones in the first year, T- Tom Robinson. It was a two-parter. I can't. N- not Tommy Robinson. Tom Robinson. It was a two-parter, and I can't remember if it was part one or part two that had the discussion that blew me away about him gro- gro- growing up at a time where his his sexuality was not frowned upon but illegal. So yeah, some great conversations. The end of year. Uh, Christmas drinks last year with K Tempest and Polar Bear. I think it was in part one we talk about Kay's um, realisation of the pronouns b- by which they want to go by. Some fantastic stuff there. I've not really planned this. I'm just reeling off a few of my favourites. So I've probably missed something along the way. But, yeah, I've had some amazing people on and... They're all great, but this episode with Michael Cashman is particularly particularly special. So I hope you enjoy it. This is a Distraction Pieces Rewind with, I mean, an icon, a key person in the Stonewall riots. Let's remember, that's what it took. It took riots. It didn't, in this instance, succumb or bend to peaceful protest. It took r- riots to get the rights of people that deserve their rights. And I don't know, man, that's, that's that, that kind of thing gets forgotten at times. So yeah, check this out. I think you're going to love it. At the very beginning, indeed. Um, I'm joined today by Michael Cashman. How are you, sir?
1: I'm I'm really good in the middle of uh, promoting and talking about my lovely book. And it just tells you how good I am. Yeah. So the other other day, I went in and they said, the final book's here. And I went into Bloomsbury, collected it. And I got a little bit emotional. Came home along this street where I grew up uh, and where I'm back living. And it was raining and I had to the book tucked inside my coat and as I passed the street, the actual street we lived on, I saw the five-year-old me and I I looked at the book and I just thought, I've written this book and all of the amazing things I've done and I'm here and I cried and I cried and I cried. Beautiful. Beautiful. and so I'm good, I'm really good. I, I just have a, a big hole in my life, but I've just got to, got to get used to that.
0: Yes, of course. And it's, 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 uh, I've just started getting into the book. I've read extensive notes on it in preparation for, for this podcast, but mm. it's a hell of a, a life that you've had and a hell of a story and a journey, and we'll go, we'll go all over the place in it. There's loads I want to ask you about, mm. but the day after we confirmed this um, interview... My Twitter feed was alight with your name as a story <laughs> resurfaced, so I figured that was a good place to, to start. And it was—it's from a while ago, f- from the '80s, when an article from a yet-to-be-shamed journalist called Piers Morgan, um, <laughs> and it, it, it was a review of an EastEnders storyline that saw your character have the first gay kiss, as described by Piers as a homosexual love scene between y- yuppie puffs. Colin and Guido, which, huh. even at the time, feels incredibly... Uh, insensitive? Insensitive, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or horrific. Yeah, well... Blunt. And you see, there's a lot of stuff, particularly in this day and age, where we have to look back and go, well, of the time, so on and so forth. But this was in print. Uh, again, I saw a few people trying to defend it, saying he was quoting different... Lords or whomever that rang you, but that sentence he was not quoting. That was his and homosexual love scene.
1: A kiss between two men is not uh, a love scene. If it was, people would be arrested the length and breadth of the country. It was the second gay kiss. Actually, the first uh, gay kiss was in 1987, and that caused outrage. I mean, if if we look at what was written then, in a way, it was a it was it was a it wasn't as bad as some of the awful stuff. I'm not excusing it. But what I would say about that was it was it was pandering to prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, yuppie puffs. There's no need to use poofs. Uh, uh, somebody lovely tweeted, said, what's a yuppie poof? Um, that, <laughs> that, that, that made me chuckle. Yeah. Um, but, but we have to remember, and again, this is no excuse for it, This was all part of the courage of the BBC of bringing a non stereotypical gay man into the family, into this family show. uh, At a time when AIDS and HIV was depicted as, I quote, the gay plague, Mm -hmm. people read in these newspapers that Piers Morgan was writing in, like The Sun, The Mail, The News of the World, all of the others, that you could catch AIDS by sitting next to a gay person or from a glass that hadn't been properly washed or a cup and people were stigmatized and stereotyped and and people faced appalling discrimination some people were, were hounded out of their homes bricks through their window i had paul and i had bricks through our window and and for me you have to look back and you have to say we have moved on but we must never forget how people treated us and how people fueled prejudice because going to my experience and the experience of many when a brick comes through your window it doesn't just happen because somebody says picks up that brick they are motivated by what they read day mm-hmm. after day what they hear day after day whether it's in their church or at work or in the pub and and we have to know the value of words and that words can liberate but actually words can actually empower someone to take those actions uh, that can remove somebody's life uh, or inflict damage. Um, so, it, uh, the journalist Chris Godfrey from the uh, from the Guardian, who did the interview about me, was right to throw that up into the Twitter ether and say, "Do you still stand by this, Piers?" Uh, I, I'm I'm told uh, Piers Morgan apologised and said it was language of the time. But but again, I say, okay, we move on. But we must never forget, because it's part of the history of liberation. Do we say 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz and uh, we shouldn't remember that anymore? Of course not, and I'm not making direct comparisons. But what I am saying is if we forget our history, we allow the next generation to forget it, and it's very easy, therefore, to repeat it.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's the key part of that story resurfacing now. And what you said there of of the enforcement of what is reported in the media and things like that and 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 we have a lot of arguments now when politicians or journalists or whomever else will say things that you can argue isn't explicitly racist or isn't explicitly homophobic as pierces was Mm. but it still adds to that strengthening of those who will pick up a brick and throw it through a window if they're feeling more and more acceptance even if it's S- subtler or more cloaked yes it's still adding to that societal suggestion that that kind of thing is acceptable and is the norm which it really isn't i know. well let's let, exactly let's jump forward now
1: um because i say the enemies of equality whether it's uh, gender equality whether it's lgbt equality race equality whatever they never give up they never go away uh, they're, they're brilliantly funded, often funded from, from uh, America and the evangelical far right, mm-hmm. um, not only from America. Um, their language becomes much more subtle. Their attacks much more subtle. Up in Birmingham, there are two schools, uh, Anderton Park School in particular, the head teacher, uh, Sarah Hewitt Clarkson, asked the local authority to get an injunction because there were protests outside the school against the inclusion of LGBT relations mm. in relationship education. It's called inclusive relationship education. There were protests on outside the school, and it went on. Now, they gained an injunction, and I went up for uh, one day of the hearing where the school and the council were seeking a permanent injunction. And to hear lawyers, senior lawyers, QCs, Refer to LGBT as if it was a danger, a threat yeah. to children, to pupils. To hear a teacher, a head teacher, have to explain why she bought LGBT books and brought them into the school. It reminded me of 32 years ago when they brought forward the first anti-gay law in a hundred years, called Clause 28, Section 28. Mm. Um, And when they brought that law in, they brought it in and they said, we're protecting children from the promotion of homosexuality. Um, A a, a terrible argument because, first of all, there was no promotion of homosexuality. You can't promote the sexuality. I live in a predominantly heterosexual world. I'm 69 years old. If heterosexuality throughout my life, with advertising, books, everything around me, promoting homosexuality according to them can't win me then a tiny minority is going to have absolutely no impact yeah, but the argument course. throw that away but it suggests that there's something negative and dirty and threatening about lgbt and there isn't what's negative and dirty and threatening is discrimination inequality and ignorance yeah. and so so what those demonstrations up there uh just remind me that our enemy, our enemies don't go away.
0: Yeah. Um, they're there. They're still here. I think. I think in the time of social media, there's almost a, a boom in the ignorance part of that, and 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 the almost willful ignorance. Um, uh, just to use an example, I I did a tweet today just in response to something because there was a thing last night that was saying how how Katy Perry has been brought on as an ambassador for the British Asian. Uh, for foundation, And I looked at that and thought, that seems odd. But then I looked into it, and they've got loads of amazing ambassadors like C- C- Connie Huck, um just many, many British Asians in there as well. So I just did a tweet saying, this seems a bit m- misleading. Mm-hmm. The, the people who think like me are right to be a bit, why are you picking a white American to be an ambassador here? But... Here's kind of the full story. Here's the behind the thing. Mm-hmm. And I had people furious at me as if I was defending something because the excitement was to get angry at a headline. And it's similar with the protests at a school, Is people, I saw people talking about that online, saying, well, they shouldn't be taught about sex at such a young age. It's like, no one was talking about teaching them about sex. They were teaching them about relationships in the same way. Exactly. They, it's not to say... They 're not old enough to learn heterosexual sex, but we 're going to teach them about homosexual sex it 's like no that wasn't no, that wasn 't what was going on yet the outrage is enough to say well if that 's what they 're doing then i 'm going to be on the street protesting yes. and uh, and in
1: in the end um if somebody stood up and said they 're saying that it 's okay if you 're a Muslim uh, to have two wives we 've got to stop that would would that be tolerated would we would we say um, that they're going to teach uh, uh, inclusive religious education but not certain other religions, would we tolerate that? Of course not. Because mm. the concept of equality means that we, deal, we we include and we talk about the multiplicity of choices that yeah. there are. But more importantly, when you're educating, you're empowering children and pupils so that the world in which they live in, uh, they are protected. Yeah. They are not abused. Like children like me, like I was abused and and I had to suffer that abuse and uh, and didn't couldn 't find the words um, to to say to my parents or people around me what what that young docker had done to me when I was seven years old, and then what subsequently occurred to me as I detail in 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 the book during yeah. my during my teens, um, I want every child to be able to find vocabulary to find the confidence to say what happens to them and for them to be believed and I came from that period where we were told kids should be seen and not heard yeah so empower young people don't hobble them through life so that uh, they can never fully defend themselves and know what their rights
0: are 100% and um, you you kind of spoke of the of the strength of your sexuality in that in the growing up in a largely heterosexual climate, that wasn't enough to to hamper you, to, to hold you back. Therefore, it can't be influenced in such a way. To look back to, to when you gr- grew up in this area, um, houses away from where you mm-hmm. are now. Um, um, and we can hear the boats in the background. Yeah. Now, we're on the river and,
1: you know, I'm just looking out of my window and there's two river boats going up. Uh, sun is just sat over to the left, and it will a little later it'll be a wonderful sunset just over to the right. Yeah. But when I was a kid, the noise and the sound on this river with boats and ships all hooting and tooting because they wanted to get over onto the docks so that they could unload and get back out to sea. Uh, the barges being shipped up and down, the dockers, the stevedores, the cranes it was incredible. And when I stand here, that's what I see. That, that 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 amazing community and the community of the docks and the and the fun and you have to remember the fun because otherwise you can't cope yeah. with with the the dark things that that were done to you. And that was the interesting thing for me, Pip, that I because I knew at an early age, very early age, that I was different. That I was attracted to other boys. Uh, and, and before that man. Um, abused me and at one point I thought is it on my forehead can people see it on my forehead so mm. that they know they can come and just use me and I, and I won't tell anyone and, uh, and, and 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 so it, it was strange in, in this hugely predominantly heterosexual area the docks but then there was always a, 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 a kind of faint Uh, attraction of what was going on in the pubs. There were always little drag pubs around the East End. And and Lou Clench's shop that I worked in as a kid, she used to to call me Nobby. I never knew why she called me (laughs) Nobby. And she'd say, Nobby, now when you cycle... um, It was on the paper round. When you cycle past that city arms, you you go past there fast. And, of course, immediately as a kid you think, oh, what goes on in the city arms? And I remember I parked the bicycle against the pub wall stood up on the saddle, looked into the pub window, and I just thought, oh, it's just people who look like my Aunt Eileen. And what I didn't know was it was mainly
0: drag queens in there. Beautiful, yeah. Again, that must have been a beautifully reassuring thing as those realisations came about, because it's easy for someone of my generation, for example, to sit here in these continually progressively liberal times for such things. Again, still fights to be fought, but, but, you know, huge progression, particularly in recent years, um, and think, oh, it must have been tough, um, Catholic upbringing in the 50s and 60s, not really any public homosexual uh, role models or figures. But what is easy to overlook and forget is those exact y- years you're probably speaking about there, the paper round years, it wasn't only frowned upon or looked down upon, it was literally illegal, which is so hard to get your head round in yeah. this, like having been b- b- born into a world where that was never the case. It's such a hard thing to think that something that is intrinsic to your complete nature, your first... Not only is it frowned upon or not talked about, it's actively illegal. How was that, and how do you kind of uh, battle that as you're coming to terms with it all? First first of all,
1: you're right to say that there were no uh, role models. The the only models you were given uh, were in the darker pages of the news of the world, invariably... Uh, vicars or, or priests, yeah. uh, c- caught generally, uh, abusing boys. There were some sensational cases like Peter Wildblood. Um, so you only read about it in a negative way, and in, and in films and, and television, we were depicted as as, as camp, effeminate, weak little people. Mm. Um, but I think when you're surrounded by people telling you that you're Attraction to someone is criminal, that you will go to prison, that you could be blackmailed, you could be arrested, has a deep psychological uh, impact. You carry it like a bit of, uh, if you can imagine in your gut, there's all this silt deep, deep down there. And if you're not careful, over the years it builds up and it stops you, it stops you functioning. And Even though in, in the 60s, when it, it was still illegal, it was illegal. Only de- partially decriminalised in 1967. Yes, I remember um, a young actor. That I was a young actor, and uh, and people were saying to me, "You should not let people know what you are because it will you, it will affect your career and you will go to prison." Um, and we went out on tour when I was 15 and a half, and I had my first experience of these smoky little back rooms in pubs. Uh, where it was all men. And it was exciting. Um, You then ended up late at night in in places like the bus stations, sat there stirring your coffee and listening to the tales, the the horrific tales. And the more naive you were, the more they wanted your eyes to pop open Mm -hmm. about the arrests and the beatings and the the queens and the prostitutes would battle with one another for the most outrageous stories. uh, and so you took comfort in being in a small space like those bars in places like Blackpool and Manchester and Leeds, but you knew that once you stepped outside that door, you you were at risk. You you might be blackmailed. You could be blackmailed into sex. Uh, you you could be beaten up and. Equally, you could be arrested if you said to someone, "You know, I really like you," because they arrested you for it was called uh, soliciting, uh, procuring, uh, or soliciting for an immoral purpose. Mm. Um, well, there
0: was an amazing f- film about it. Was it called The Victim? I the think Victim it was that yeah. was the first that, that painted the homosexual um, character as 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 the victim, as the one attacked, rather than as the villain. And it mm. was it was hugely important in cinema and in entertainment at that point to have that because it's it's I, I talk about it all the time on the podcast but i'm a big believer that there's a certain area of society who will listen to a progressive lecture or or a speech being given or read an article but there's a whole different area that will ignore that whereas if you can tell those stories through entertainment that's when you can get through to those people and that exactly. it felt like it just I, I i saw it a while back at the um at the Dulwich, um gallery or museum and yeah, it felt hugely important to to mm. be get, telling that story because it was it was exactly that of the fear of blackmail, yeah. the fact that you will be bl- bl- blackmailed, and that can be just cr- crippling mentally and physically and and financially, obviously. And
1: and and, and you you saw people because they, these cases were reported; they were given yeah. huge space. Um, and uh, and so even when they de- partially decriminalised in 1967, and I was sixteen. By that time, I'd set up a relationship with a, um, a boy who was... I say a boy because we were young boys. I was 16, he was 24, um, and we ended up being together for nine years. But he said to me, he said, we have to have two separate rooms, mm. uh, or wherever we share, two separate beds. You have to tell people you're my cousin, that's why we're sharing. Um, because the police could knock on your door yeah. at any time, because I was 16 and he was 24, and the age of consent was 21. Right. And people will now hear that helicopter going above, and that's often the troop carriers. Right. They, they come all the way up here along the river and up towards Hyde Park. Yeah. Um, and
0: so the discrimination didn't really change in after
1: 1967. Well, that's
0: one of the things, again, with history and with dates, it's easy to, to look at 1967 and go, oh, it all changed then. It yeah. was. It was the well, breakthrough, and it's important, of course, but... Purely the fact that the first gay kiss came 20 years later Later. on TV, that's an illustration of how how slow a process it was. It wasn't a, it's now decriminalised, therefore everyone's okay and everyone's safe, because there was still uh, generation after generation who'd been brought up with it being illegal. And, to be blunt, there were politicians, police officers, all sorts of people who had had their whole career... with it being a crime. So a change on paper isn't a change in mindset. Mm-hmm. So what relief did you feel at that time and how much was it, a, yeah, a gradual process rather than a, a celebration? It was both, actually. Yeah. It, was, it was gradual because, actually, it,
1: as a young person, gradually you realise what the problems are. Yeah. It was celebration because we had bars, we had clubs to go to. I remember the first club I went to um, when I was 15 and a half, uh, so just before the decriminalisation, and it was called La Douce in Darbley Street, just off um, Berwick Street in Soho. And every time I go past there, I remember... Excitement of when I went down those stairs and went through that second door and I deal with all of this and, and that time of the 60s and the 70s of yes. gay, gay, hidden gay London. It's there in the book. Um, and I went down the stairs and went through and my heart catapulted out of my chest because there were young young men my own age dancing cheek to cheek and nobody turned an eye and I spotted a few faces that I knew... From stage school that I, because I I was then a young actor, and so because we had those bars and clubs where we could seek refuge and be yeah. ourselves, you didn't realise the enormity of the criminal law until it it suddenly hit you or a friend, mm. uh, or you were beaten up uh, because you might be near a public toilet or a cruising area, and you knew you couldn't go you couldn't go to the police because they would figure out why you were there um well and we rode interestingly on that kind of we've got our pubs we've got our clubs right the way through into the early 80s when AIDS and HIV hit our community and the places of refuge that we could go to we could go to no longer Mm. um And that was the unforgivable thing because it was at that precise moment when the Thatcher government decided to bring in that anti-lesbian and gay law. The first time in 100 years. And they brought it in against a community of primarily gay and bisexual men and and others absolutely right to say were affected by the virus. Um, And instead of supporting us uh, and giving us hope and comfort, Uh, They brought a hammer blow onto Mm -hmm. our community to drive us underground uh, because some local authorities were beginning to positively help uh, uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual communities. Uh, And it was that shift where I think Section 28, this anti-gay law, made us realise that we had no equality whatsoever. We could be sacked from our jobs. We could be kicked out of our homes. We could be kicked... De- denied flats, denied goods and services, people could discriminate you against you solely on the basis that they thought you might be lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and you had absolutely no redress in law whatsoever, and that section twenty eight woke us up mm. and I think it was the it was the straw that broke the camel 's back because of the fights that we were having trying to support our community, uh, watching our friends, members of our family die and die sometimes a, a, a death which was also faced by stigmatization uh, and hatred uh, and so that was when we kept, we realized that we had no rights uh, that final moment when we thought you want to fight we'll give you a fight
0: yeah yeah it, i mean if it, it feels like it's a it was it was the ultimate snake on the snakes and ladders board that there'd been such a fight for so long and then suddenly those who'd been resisting the fight had the perfect tool the yes. perfect thing to say well no we were right all along I, we never wanted to accept this and now here's our reason we can profit essentially off of the fear and off of the yes. panic and off of the 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 outrage and, and 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 put you back in your box put you back where you belong and the, the, report, the, the reporting of it uh, was incredible britain was under
1: threat from gays some people not only vicars but some people were saying it's aids is the wrath of god the the chief constable of greater manchester james anderton Hmm. who said that he used to speak frequently with god i wouldn't like his phone bill um (laughs) but uh, said said that and he said that gay men were swirling around in a cesspit of their own making and this was reported um and so Was it any wonder that when I went into that show in 1987 that there were calls, there were questions in Parliament as Mm -hmm. to why, with AIDS and HIV, there was a gay man, a homosexual, going into this family show where children could see it because it was on before 8 o'clock at night. Then, as the storyline develops, there were calls for the show to be taken off or the characters to be axed. And the fact that we continued with it and it's something you said earlier but when we talked about the film The Victim, that the fact that we were going into people's homes and they mm. knew Albert Square and they knew Wolford and they knew Dot and Arthur Fowler and Pauline Fowler and that pub and the fact that I was there and it was three months before they even knew Colin was gay yeah. and met his partner, that we were going into people's homes and people felt comfortable with us and there was a brilliant letter I got after the first kiss the outrage and the letters from the moral campaigners. Um, And this woman wrote to me and said that she'd watched the Sunday afternoon repeat of the show. It used to be repeated Sunday afternoon. And she said, my two sons, the nine-year-old said to me, why is Colin kissing Barry? And she said, I said to him, well, as mummy loves daddy, so Colin loves Barry. And that was when I knew why they hated us, the tabloids and the Mm. right-wingers, because we were quietly undermining their narrow view of life and the world and people and love, and they didn't like it, and we were getting through. Yeah. We were getting through.
0: And again, it's the beauty that you were allowed to become their friend first. Yes. Before they found out, rather than this simple thing. There's... It seems like an odd comparison, but it was a song last year. It was one of the biggest songs of the year. It's called, it's called Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. And I think it's one of the most important songs in recent history because it was it was a rap and country song. And it got in the country chart, it got to number one. There was a big campaign because it was kept off of the country chart originally and there was arguments, well, it's only because this, this young man's b- black. It's as country as anything else. So it was all of this, all back and forth. And then he got to number one in the country chart and the rap chart, and then the Billboard chart. And after that, Lil Nas X came out as bisexual. Oh my god! So he uh, and and yes. and I come from the hip, like, from the rap world, and that's an area that has still had problems with 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 homophobia, oh. as has country. So it felt beautiful that he he timed it to become their absolute champion, the number one person in their industry at that time, and then say, "By the way, I'm gay." So, Brilliant. so he's befriended them already, and he, 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 exactly the same. Rather than throwing uh, sensation a gay moment straight yeah. onto the screen in EastEnders, they've been... gone. Here's, here's Colin. Yeah, here's exactly.
1: Your Here he is, um, and, and and the other way around is sensational. Somebody recently said to me in the publishing world because I'm new uh, to, to writing books. I've I've, uh, I've written a, a couple of plays before, yeah. And somebody said to me, he said, Michael, I'm thinking of giving up publishing. I want to get involved he said because of your story I want to get involved in in activism I want to get get involved in doing that and I said I said you know what said, the best way you can get involved in activism is by becoming successful at what you do mm. because you then pre- present yourself to others uh, I said you become a role model you become a peer I said and, and actually at some point you can use your clout and your voice When others need it, you add it to others. And the fact that you're in the publishing world instead of the world of activism or politics in a strange way gives your voice a greater volume and a bigger resonance. And I'm pleased to say he took my advice. Uh, and he recently got wonderful promotion in another company. Amazing, and, um, and I hope he listens. I should I should tell him to listen. Yes, to
0: this. Yes, I love that. I'm, I feel like I'm I'm bringing in all the pop culture references now. But there's a, <laughs> a song by a band called The Idols, and it has a wonderful line of the best way to scare a Tory is to read and get rich. And again, I think it's just a wonderful s- something. of rather than necessarily. Rallying against those who you see as, as your enemy, become their equal, overtake them, show that there's other options in these in these things. But I mean, I want to talk about EastEnders a little more and Colin because mm. again, it's easy to look back or to even to, to look on and say, "Oh, it was such an important role, an important role for for the LGBT plus scene at the time and world." But that also allows you to dehumanise you, the individual who had to make that choice. And there would have been, there must have been pressures there to think this is important. But am I the person to do it? Am I the person to take these stones thrown at me? Am I the person to take these threats and this abuse? How was that weighing that, that up at the time? Your maybe your personal sacrifices that would come with. The greater good essentially
1: you're you're right to highlight that because a lot of what before i took the job uh, I, i knew the tabloids would go for me i didn't think they'd go for paul uh who then we'd been together about two and a half years and and we we were together for 31 years um he sadly died five and a half years ago um i didn't think they'd go for him i was i was so naive um and I said when they offered me the job, I've got to ask Paul, I've got to ask my mum and dad. And there was a price to pay. He, You know, the, the, the announcement of me in the show before I was even on screen was East Benders, the headline, the front page mm-hmm. of The Sun. Um, and then there were other uh, really, uh, there was some nasty reporting. And so I just got on with the job because I thought, okay, it's a job. But it had a real, stra- put a real strain on my relationship with Paul, we nearly split up over it because I was becoming obsessive about what I was doing and then, when this anti gay law section twenty eight came in uh, we 'd just come back from holiday in in, in uh, America where we Paul and I always used to mend our ways together on holiday. It was brilliant he, he loved he, he loved a good time <laughs> um, he loved loved fun, as I say in in the dedication. Uh, Of the book to him for Paul the man who put the F in fun Um, And we came back from this wonderful holiday and I read that there was going to be a camp a march against this uh, Section 28 and I didn't even ask him. I didn't ask anyone. I just knew I had to be on this March I knew I thought I thought you can't be on screen playing this important gay character and people know that you're openly gay and not be on that march. And I knew if I didn't go on that march, I would never be able to look myself in the face again. And so I went on that. There's a a lovely story about how June Brown, who plays Dot, managed to get me time off so I could go. Um, But often I would think, why is it me that I've got to do it again? And then the other voice in your head says, come on, do it. Um, and And so... So it became a lot easier um, working around w- with people like Ian McKellen and the wonderful activist um, Lisa Power, Jenny Wilson, Duncan Campbell, even Matthew Paris, the, the Times uh, writer, um, joined us when we were setting up Stonewall. Uh, and it became, it, be- it became a bit easier because you had that sense of solidarity. Um, but, you know, if I'm honest... Even now, I, when there's an issue, something might be happening in this country, there might be still, well, there is still the reluctance to, to roll out PrEP, as it should be mm-hmm. rolled out. And, and you know you have working with THT and uh, AIDS frontliners and all of that. You've got to get up there in Parliament and raise the issue. And every so often you think, oh, I wish I could sit back and watch somebody else do it. And then you yeah. think, no, come on, that's that's why you have a voice. And if you don't lose it, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm. Um, but it was difficult, and for Paul to be outed to his family and his friends in the centre pages of the news of the world was awful. And 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 I, I will never know the collateral damage that was done to my nieces and nephews uh, or or my brothers because they never came to me and said, oh, this has been said in the playground to my kids because they were cashmans. But, you know, if there's a price to pay in my terms, it's a a price worth paying. But then later on, again, as I I write about, because it's so important, I had to make decisions about stepping back from Stonewall, uh, about knowing that there there are times to let go, and if you have the courage to let go, then something grows in a brilliant way beyond your, your, your imagining. Uh, yeah. And also I had to make decisions about saving uh, my relationship and some may argue saving my sanity. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, a, it's, 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 it's such a, a, a powerful story in that it feels like some of the the horror... And tragedy in 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 the early parts of your life in particular, because it is again you can look at you know plucked out of school to enter show business, mm. it can look like a dream s- scenario, yeah. but it is a story that is 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 also rife with exploitation and as you've said to be blunt abuse yeah. um but it feels like maybe the fact that you had the strength to get through these horrific things and still f- fight and still feel it was your place to. To stand in these fights that you maybe hadn't picked or hadn't started, it feels like getting through those things in early life strengthened you and gave you that resolve to say no I would rather I take this than someone else, I know that I can survive this, so I would rather I'm at the front of this protest mm. than someone who maybe could take more of a hit and whether that be mem- members of your family or loved ones, you know, I'd rather take this on their behalf I hadn't, I hadn't thought of
1: that but I think I think you're right that, that gaining that resilience to uh, to say right I'll go forward I, I will be because you don't use these words to yourself but but that you will be a survivor and you, and, and knowing actually knowing that you can take the hit yeah. but in a strange way, and I had this experience right brought right home to me after Paul died when I went through an awful time and I'm not saying I don't go through those awful times now I do. We all battle with, with what we have to deal with in life. And I, 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 was, I was away working. I was in New York and I was going through a crisis and I managed to get in touch with a friend of mine who who was a counsellor, Beachy, brilliant counsellor. He helped people like Elton get rid of the, 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 the addiction to booze and, and, and drugs. And, and Beachy, in three text messages, got it. He said, you don't like the person you see in the mirror, do you? Mm-hmm. And and and, I, and he said, go and look, go in the bathroom, look at that person in the mirror and see the person that other people see. And it was then I think I realised that that's why I could fight for other people because I didn't believe I was worth fighting for. Right. And I think that comes from all of those experiences uh, as a child and as a teenager and that awful experience I had. Uh, at that stage school that i went to where my confidence and everything was stripped away it it it, it has consequences uh, but my dad actually once said that's a lovely story about him that after i left the uh east enders I, I did a documentary about discrimination against lesbians and gay men and where it came from i called it a kiss is just a kiss mm-hmm. and um uh, and it went out, and here my mum, as they always used to do, whether I had a tiny part or fronting a documentary, phoned up and they said, proud of you, son, proud of you. And then the next day he rang in the morning, and and he said about how he was proud, and he'd been to his pub, and they'd given him a pint. And he said, So I'm proud of you. I said, yeah, you, you told me that last night. And, and then he said, he said, and I want to tell you, and his voice started to quake. He said, that I love you. I love you, son. And I nearly nearly broke down. I said, yeah, I, lo- I love you too, Dad. And he said, right, I'm going back. Get that pint that the, the, uh, the governor put on the bar before he takes it back. And I knew, actually, that that was the moment I became my father's son, that he realised that if he'd been gay and he'd had exactly the same opportunities and the same chances, he would have done exactly the same. Mm. Um, and I'm so proud of that. I'm proud that it... Happened. I I I learned about my father as a real man because of his friendship and his relationship with Paul. Um, yeah. Because if you think about it, my dad had four sons, so he never thought he was going to get a son-in-law. Yeah. And I gave him <laughs> yeah, the perfect son-in-law course. who loved football, loved sport, uh, loved politics, and they could talk about football until the cows came home. Whereas it bored me silly. But. But that, I mean, that's what I mean about the complexity of life and how, for me, you can so often find that tender part of you that you've shut away and denied uh, only when you have the courage to love and the courage to own up to the fact that you can be loved, Mm. that you deserve to be loved and that you don't deserve, as you think, to be abused.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, it's a beautiful story because, again, it's that moment of, and it relates to, to Paul as, as well there. There's your dad, as much as I'm sure he reveled in it, but he has to love his sons. That's, that's, that's his fatherly duty. No. He didn't have to love Paul. No. So that's the beautiful thing there to yes. choose that. And, and again, yes. that moment of that phone call from the pub, that's that moment of... That recognition for you that this isn't simply that I have to love my sons. This is the real, look, I love you. It, you know, that it feels so powerful on both of those counts and, and there. Also, that it's, it's not just the the responsibility to love. No. It's, I, it's, the, it's the choice to love. He came from that generation, Um uh, you know, a tough
1: working-class man, twice a prisoner of war released by the italians mm. captured by the germans uh, where men didn't express mm. love to one another unless they were drunk and you certainly mm. didn't to your sons because your sons had to be tough like you mm-hmm. you when i was born like my other brothers our names were put down at the port labor board so that we would follow him into the docks um so that declaration of love i i'd never heard him say that before um and the fact that it came through that relationship with paul was incredible
0: yeah i love that so so can we go back to the the founding of of stonewall you co-founded it with ian mccann and it was it was in response to section 28 of the of the of the local government act and how did that feel to say that we have to essentially we have to organize it's not enough to be to be vocal we have to organize because i mean it sounds dramatic but i don't think it is our enemy is organized our enemy is incredibly organized so we can't simply protest or or speak we need to have that further level of of unity and organization to battle this that was exactly what it was unity and organization and we certainly didn't
1: have unity Mm -hmm. when we set up stonewall um, we were attacked from other activists uh we were attacked from sections of the lesbian and gay media as to who did we think we were, who did we represent, and my, my arrogant answer was we represent ourselves and we're going to try and achieve equality. And if, other, if other people want to opt into it, great. If they don't, fine. Um, Organising was difficult. It took us nearly a year to get the right people together. Some people said no because our remit was you had to be Openly lesbian, gay, or bisexual—you couldn't be in the closet mm-hmm. um, because we would present ourselves as representing the issues. And what we'd learnt during the campaign against Section 28 was that there were politicians who were willing to listen and willing to listen to an argument. So we knew that there was a, there, were, there were arguments to to be won. But the attacks came because they said you should be a membership organisation. And and what we did know, because we'd seen it with other membership organisations, was how they'd imploded by Mm. serving the different wings of their membership rather than serving and servicing the arguments for change uh, and equality. And we launched it here in 1989, a year after uh, Section 28 became law, on Ian's Terrace overlooking the Thames. And then we had to raise money uh, because we knew we couldn't get any public money for it, that Section 28 forbid that. Um, so we had to do what we did best, which was to put on a show. And we, mm. we put on a, an amazing benefit of the powerful play Bent by Martin Sherman uh, yes. about the incarceration uh, of um, not only homosexuals, but, the, but Jews, gypsies um, and others by the, by the Nazis and working them to death. It's a it's a, play, a great play about identity and liberation, and we did that. We put it on for one night, amazing cast with Rafe Fines, Alex Jennings, Ian Charlson, the wonderful Ian Charlson, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and in one night in 1989 we raised uh, we made thirty thousand pounds profit, wow. and I went back to Cameron Macintosh. It's in the book, so I won't give it away. <laughs> and Cameron uh, jumped up and. Um, and supported us in, in a brilliant way. And, and that gave us the money to hire a member of staff because we said it's going to be a professional organisation staffed. Yeah. Um, and, um, and we had a tiny little office about the size of a toilet in um, Strutton Ground uh, just in, in Victoria because we had to have an SW1 address so that the politicians took us seriously and so that we could get into the House of Commons yes. to lobby and to make sure another section twenty eight never happened again
0: yeah and it's 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 such a powerful thing that 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 coming together, and as you said the the people having to be out and yep. and, and 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 open because all my family is south London, and I remember that period where there was none of my family. Certainly not now, but certainly not in my upbringing do I remember ever being homophobic or mm-hmm. ever having anything mm-hmm. like that. But it was that time where it was often easier to ignore it. And when you look yes. at people like the Pet Boys and George Michael, all these people, absolutely the biggest acts in, 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 in the country and, and in the world. And they had to – you when they supported Stonewall, j- j- joined Stonewall, did gigs with you guys, all these amazing things, it meant that those who could – selectively ignore it could no longer selectively ignore it it's exactly. like the, these your idols are homosexual well and the deal fact, with it
1: <laughs> and the, <laughs> fact, the fact that you had ian who um he wasn't a big movie star then yeah. but was considered the greatest and well is the greatest shakespearean actor of his generation then so you had shakespeare and soap me yeah. and ian doing it and then and and there's a wonderful story in the book how I managed to get David Hockney to support us and then Elton John and Billy Connolly um and and it was the celebrity the the celebrity glamour got Stonewall's name up there got the issue up there and so when we went because this was how we made money, you know, doing these benefits, the annual equality show that we started the, the, the Palladium and then took to the Royal Albert Hall. Um, it meant that they couldn't ignore the issue, they couldn't ignore us. Uh, and the fact that it had celebrity around it meant that politicians and the media, the tabloids, were yeah. attracted to it. Um, uh, and, um, and, and I look back with... Such amusement and fondness for those
0: artists who didn't hesitate, as you said, like the Pet Shop Boys, Paul O'Grady up there, Jason Donovan. Well, I, I, I always make my notes and I started to make a bit of a list and I had to stop because I had I had the Pet Shop Boys, Pinter, Judy Dench, Stephen Fry, Patrick Stewart, Gary Oldman, just Antonio Banderas who had an amazing film recently called Pain and Glory that's a beautifully mm. delicate telling of the development of, of a gay relationship and yes. the, the closetedness of it versus, or the, or the knock-on effect of the closetedness of it and things like that. Beautiful story. W- wonderfully powerful. And again, that list of people was just, it was endless and it was and wonderful. Then, and, and, uh, and and again, Judy as you Dane say, Key, unavoidable. Peggy unavoidable. Yeah. you know. It's, a, it's amazing, but it made it unavoidable and that's the beauty of it. It made it something that people couldn't just turn away from and ignore because it was people... In every area of th- their lives, if you're a fan of theatre, there would be your favourite people from theatre. If you're a fan of TV, TV, radio, radio, everywhere, it would say, "No, we are adding to the, r- the richness of your life yep. directly." And, look, um, you know?
1: um, 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 and Pip, the, the the great thing was, a lot of these people weren't lesbian, gay, or bisexual, yeah. um, but they made a connection with you. Cannot deny equality to these people because it affects. Me. Yeah. And that is the power of standing up for the rights of others because you know that if you want to look at it selfishly, if you allow somebody else's rights to go or you barter them away, eventually, we need look back no further than the 1930s, yeah. eventually your rights will go. and the And the ability to imagine, what if that were me? What if that were my child? What if that were my mother, my father, whatever if it was not right for them how could it be right for anybody else and that was the powerful signal and and one show we did everything had to be written or performed that was written or uh, uh, everything that was performed had to be written or composed by a lesbian a gay man or a bisexual yeah. because we were making a statement that if you had this section 28 you could potentially lose all of this in a yeah. local authority concert hall theater so we had to write and get permission Uh, Again, there's some lovely stories that I use in the book. But one I remember fondly was Leonard Bernstein. We wanted to do a number from West Side Story. And Leonard Bernstein wrote back and said, yeah, I'm proud of that bisexual period of my life. By that time, he was married and doing other things. But the association um, was absolutely glorious. Um, Sadly, we couldn't do the number. Uh, because of the response from the lyricist and i'll have to let people uh read about that
0: yeah yeah um so can we talk about your choice to become an MEP to to continue fighting again to fight uh, as we said the 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 thing with Stonewall was it was the realisation that we need more than just the people at the front. We need the organisation. We need the people in those rooms. It's great to have these events that have the Pet Shop Boys and George Michael and all the glamour, but it needs more than that. You needed to raise that thirty thousand to have an employee. Yeah, and was that kind of the realisation? It was like right, we need, we don't just need the front line. We need the back line as well. We need people in Parliament, in 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 these meetings, in these rooms representing but, us. That, that wasn't uh, a, a conscious thought, mm-hmm.
1: um, because Stonewall's uh, approach was, the, we consider LGBT rights high-profile, high-agenda rights. Uh, they're human rights. Um, and so, therefore, if a party considers itself a serious political party, it has to address those mm-hmm. rights. And there weren't many, uh, hardly anyone, out in, in politics... Uh, And Stonewall's other way was not only through the political process but taking cases through the courts to get to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg and working with some amazing individuals. But for me, I never thought I'd go into politics. I I left my education really finished at the age of 12. Mm. When I left school, I learned I knew how to tap dance, sing, act, impersonate – arguably key skills for a politician Absolutely. <laughs> especially the impersonator yeah, exactly. um, and and so when later um i, I was asked by a, a margaret mcdonough who she was the london organizer I, I was a member of the labour party london regional organizer margaret subsequently became the first woman general secretary of the labour party yeah. and she said you know stand for the european parliament And I said, Margaret, I'm sanding the floor at the moment in the basement. She said, well, that doesn't mean anything. I said, no, Margaret, I I, I can't. And Paul came in, and I told him, and he said, why not? He said, you'd be brilliant. Um, And I thought about it. And all of the, uh, the lack of confidence that was brewing away in there, haven't completed my education, didn't go to university, could I do it? And they convinced me I could, and I ran for it. And the first time I ran for it, I didn't get the nomination in the party. And then the next time I ran for it and I got it and the campaign was difficult. The campaign was nasty internally. Um, and when I was elected, Paul was with me and I was so proud because it, he was a pivotal part of it. And I became the first openly gay man to be elected as a member of the European Parliament for the United Kingdom and went there. To, do, to be enabled and given the privilege to do some amazing things around equality yeah. and equality in those countries like Bulgaria and Romania and Poland and Lithuania, Cyprus, all of those countries that were joining uh, and working on the principle that Europe is a, is a project which is based on fundamental human rights and the, and the defence of those rights. And so while I was there, I, I was able to do a lot, um, able to work with stonewall uh, and then we reignited the um, lesbian and gay intergroup which is like a cross-party group and it became the single biggest cross-party group in the in the parliament and only this week somebody sent me a photograph on whatsapp saying i hope you feel that your legacy is okay today is the inaugural meeting of the new lgbt intergroup and in this huge meeting room it's standing room only. Amazing. Uh, and they had Commissioner, uh, the Maltese Commissioner, Helena Daly, a great campaigner, there to give them their inaugural speech. Um, so, yeah, I'm a proud European, and I'm desperately sad that Britain's taken the decision it has. Mm. Um, but we've got to look at this decision carefully and have the courage to uh, re-examine it by winning the democratic argument again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, uh, one thing that jumped out to me was um your requesting to your successful request for Tony Blair to to have the issue of civil partnerships included in the Queen's speech. <laughs> How was that? Cuz again it's those things that feel like you're really getting into the 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 impenetrable, the the, the so traditional and so out of reach. You're you're going. No, this is all. It's for all of us. Well, by that time, I was. I'd also, which was
1: really unusual for a member of the European Parliament. um, I served two years on the national executive committee of the Labour Party, the controlling, so-called controlling body of the 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 party, and then I was re-elected as a member of the as a politician. It hadn't happened before to a member of the European Parliament. And I saw... So I had access to to Tony Blair uh, on at least a monthly basis through those meetings, and I could raise any issue, and indeed uh, other cabinet ministers there. And I worked closely with Stonewall because we were still progressing the equality agenda in, in the UK. And uh, 97, the Labour government, 98, an equal age of consent, and and Tony Blair used parliament act to override mm-hmm. the opposition of the house of lords which kicked it back at wow. least twice and and, uh, and and so i saw my role w- working with stonewall and my position in the party was to tell tony um opinions that he might not hear um and and to and to unblock i always say in politics you've got to consider yourself that all you are is you're a plumber yeah. you're there to remove the blockage to make sure everything flows much better and much more effectively yeah. and efficiently and so i so i went in on numerous occasions but there's one that isn't in the book um but, but the civil partnerships angela said to me angela mason from stonewall i i need you to raise this with the prime minister and and there's a lovely bit where we're sat together in on the terrace of the garden in um number 10 Downing Street, and the traffic droning past. Uh, and I asked him to, to bring civil partnerships forward. In, this was in July, yeah. in, in the Queen's speech in November. Yeah. And he gave me a little wry smile, looked over to um, his political advisor, uh, Sally, and he said, we can do that, can't we? And she went, mm, yes. And he looked at me and he said, there you are, Michael, uh, next. I love it. And that was, and I, I I was on... Cloud nine, but then there were other times when I had to say to him, like over uh, adoption, when the Catholic Church and others were opposing uh, that that they should consider uh, lesbian and gay men, bisexuals a- as adopted mm-hmm. parents. Consider, right? No one has the right to adopt, uh, and so I, I raised it with, with with Tony Blair, and I said, "I'm told that your office is part of the problem," and he looked at me. This is in an open meeting at the National Executive. And he looked at me and he said, "Michael, first of all, um, it's not my, my office. I have no problem with this." He said, and "There is only one thing to consider, and that is the right of the child to the best adoptive parents." I think the Catholic Church has got it wrong on this, wow. and the Catholic Church is out of touch with its laity. Mm. And 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 so I, I was privileged in in that I had uh, that I could use my position to raise issues with him that he might not otherwise hear. And again, I, I outlined something in the book where I, I, I intervened. And I think if I hadn't, he just would have found out about it that night in what they, they call the red boxes, where you read well, the decisions that have been taken or you just need to sign them off. And he would have read about the issue that I raised with him at the end of the day when it was too late to change it. Yeah. Um, so I was again, fortunate.
0: Yeah. I love that. We. We're at the hour mark, so I'll start to round things up. But I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear a little about your choice after all this, after a lifetime of of battling and fighting and campaigning and activism. Um, your choice after t- 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 twenty plus years with Paul to to have your civil partnership to to be allowed to make this official as as, as such under the eyes yes. of, of of society rather than simply within your four walls how was that and how how did that decision a moment come about well what before i actually answer that the great thing about
1: equality is being able to opt out being able to say no i don't want a civil partnership i don't i don't want a marriage um i want to create my own ghetto i've always said to have the choice to do something is crucial when um paul organized it he was a brilliant organizer Mm -hmm. Little did I know when Barbara Windsor introduced us all those years before that this man would organise my life and turn me around, make me another person, and I think a better person. And um, so we decided we were going to have our civil partnership and uh, and we put all the things into play. Uh, As people will read in the book, there was a a time when I thought, this isn't going to happen, this isn't going to happen. All our guests were assembled, I thought it's not going to happen. But I can say to to people, never underestimate the power, the absolute power of being able to say in public, this is the person I love and this is the person I'm committing my life to. And we did that in public. And my only sadness was that my parents weren't around to see it. Mm. If, if my dad had been, he probably would have got drunk and appeared as an old lady in the, uh, in, at the drink celebration afterwards. He was always fond of doing that. <laughs> um, and our families were there, our friends were there, and it was such a powerful day. And later on during um, his battle with cancer, in this room I was stood just behind him doing the ironing. He was sat on the sofa, couldn't keep his head up, because it was a bad day with the chemotherapy. And I love to do ironing, because as Mo Molum uh, always says, she used to love filling the, the dishwasher and then emptying it. She said, because in politics, you never get to see if you finished anything. She said, whereas <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon, that was hers. Well, mine was ironing. I loved doing it. And I looked down at this beautiful man, 13 years younger than me, sat on the sofa, and I said, Paul, because by then... Um, same-sex marriage had come in. And I said, Paul, will you marry me? And he said, no, today's not a good day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I continued ironing. And they went, hang on. I said, I'd just ask you if you'd marry me. And he said, and I said, today is not a good day. <laughs> so that was it. We had our, we had our civil partnership. And I, I think probably he was sat there battling with this chemotherapy, battling with this most of aggressive of cancers, a cancer that they only saw one in every three million. And he mm. probably thought, and on top of this, he thinks I'm going to organise our wedding. Yeah. He must be joking. You're uh, not
0: happy with the last party I threw for our, exactly. our relationship. Exactly. I love that. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it seems fair to discuss and, and, and talk about the, your choice to, to walk away from Stonewall. And, and, and to move on from that. What was the reasoning behind that, and how, how hard a, a decision was that to come to, I guess? The, the reasoning
1: was quite complex. Uh, I've got an addictive personality, and I, I now control it. But with an addictive personality, you become obsessive. And so all of my free time, I was giving to Stonewall. And it was, and, and, and Paul at one point, because he was at that time uh, an actor. Uh, he was out on tour with the Rocky Horror Show and he used to say I wonder why I bother to come home mm-hmm. You're not here uh, uh, And it was affecting the relationship and I also knew that I was holding the organization back Right that it could develop in a different way mm-hmm. um, And I was holding on to the old ways and I made my mind up that I had to let go and even at the meeting where I announced my resignation I was still battling with the other half of my ego that was saying you can't go because if you go, look, there's no, no one here who can take over. Um, and when I announced it and I came home and I told Paul, I didn't even tell him because I didn't want anyone to reason me out of it because I knew right. it needed a new chair. It needed a new leader. Angela Mason, a brilliant executive director, wanted to develop the, the organisation in, in a different way. And so uh, um, Elaine, my deputy she she was then elected as uh, as the chair and and it was absolutely the right thing to do it, freed me up. I could get on with other things. Uh, I could commit to Paul, commit to uh, the plays that I was doing, and then into politics, uh, and be a part of Stonewall without yeah. having to strangle it yeah, yeah and to stand back and watch it grow in a way that i never imagined in a brilliant way was was an amazing gift to receive
0: yeah i love that so i mean we started the podcast talking of of you standing on the street you grew up in and seeing your five year old self and having your book mm-hmm. in your hand and having that pride how was it in in 2014 to be made Baron Cashman of Limehouse in the London borough of Tower Hamlets (laughs) to be and again particularly somewhere that you loved but again I'd imagine for a good period of your life felt you would maybe never be accepted because of what you had to hide because of who you were and what you were so to be able to have not only come out as that not only be accepted as that but to be celebrated and honoured in such a way that must have been the ultimate kind of Cap to, to to put on all of that on, on on that part of the journey. Well,
1: first of all, uh, there's a song from t- Talk Song Trilogy, not from Talk Song Trilogy. Um, I can't remember what, but it's "I Am What I Am." Yeah, and I started singing, "I was what I was, <laughs> and what I was needs no excuses." <laughs> I never thought it would happen to me. Yeah, it happened to others, and so I knew. Paul and I were tipped, I was told early in the year that my name was going forward and told, that you know, it wasn't a certainty. Um, And it was confirmed in the September, and I'm pleased it was, because it was bittersweet, because I went into the Lords uh, four days after Paul died. Mm. And on that, he died in the early hours of that Friday morning on the 24th of October. I was there with him throughout it all at the Royal Marsden Hospital, and even when we were finally told he was still planning on how he might get to the get a, all of the necessary medical support to get him to the House of Lords to see me introduced uh, on the following tuesday and uh, uh, there's a there's a lovely video recording they always do a video recording of uh, of your introduction as they call it, and there's a moment where i'm looking up and I look up. And I see everyone there, my family, my friends, but there's no Paul. And my legs, I felt them starting to go. And then I thought of him, and in this video, a smile breaks out across my face, and I was okay. And the compassion and the kindness that I was shown during those days after Paul's death in the House of Lords shocked me. It was incredible, incredibly generous and warm and amazing and so to kind of sum it up Lord Cashman of Limehouse who's got an amazing job back where he was a little mudlark a ragamuffin where I was always up to mischief the most amazing life without the one person that would make sense of it all and that's Paul but I don't wallow in self-pity I battle with the daily little battles of him not being around, of wanting to share brilliant news with him and to share my fears. Um, but to have had 31 years um, with him is wonderful and it'll set me up for whatever else I've got to do.
0: Thank you so much for your time. As as, as we said, I'll mention it in the intro and outro, but one of them, um, your book is out now and, uh, yeah, I highly r- recommend it. What's the plan? for 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 what's next and what's ahead are you allowed to it feels like completing something like this such an amazing story should now allow you to relax a little bit to take some time off maybe to take those holidays that you know from what i hear paul would have forced and you might not do on your own so much so
1: paul Paul certainly would have forced that (laughs) one of his great because i was always worried about the future you know uh, he grew up in a poor you know, poor background, and I used to think, well, we have got to think about the future. And he used to say, spend it, spend <laughs> it. Um, I do need – I'm looking forward to a lovely holiday. Um, but my wonderful publishers, Bloomsbury, they want to keep me out there. I'm, I'll be doing um, book readings and signings. I'm doing a lot during LGBT History Month, February. Yes. And then I'll be off to places like Bristol, York, Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh hey on why doing those and and being in virgin territory it feels like a holiday as well so but but a a really nice moment to step back and um enjoy what i've achieved and you know what i i never thought i'd say that
0: yeah well thank you so much for your time it's been a Pleasure. pleasure thank you
1: i've really enjoyed it been listening to Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces
0: there we go that was a little rewind as said with Michael Cashman amazing dude his book's amazing he's amazing yeah absolutely blown away by I remember sitting there it's weird to think it was in February of last year so it would have been one of the last you know in person ones I sat down and recorded the last handful and I remember just being just in awe And regularly having to remind myself that I have to be leading this conversation and this interview because I could listen to Michael all day long. Um, As said, the films list, I'll give you the, the films list again now. And if you watch any of these, hit me up on socials and let me know what you think. If you get through all of them, even better. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on these films. So there's some French films, a 120 BPM and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. There's an Italian film, A Special Day. There's three British films, Victim, that's from 1961, God's Own Country and Ammonite. And then American films, there's Tangerine and Beach Rats. And I think you'll thoroughly enjoy um, all of them. And yeah, as I said in the intro, give me a shout on socials if you watch them and enjoy them. Any that stand out, any special standout moments or favourite bits, um, holler at your boy. Uh, yeah, big love and respect and huge pride out to all my LGBTQ+, plus homies, homets, and I don't know what the gender-neutral term for homies would be. I use homies as a gender-neutral term anyway. So um, all of you beautiful people, wherever you are on the gender spectrum, massive love and respect have a good one stay safe stay sane and stay sexy Teta.